0: This week's John Tap Racing podcast is brought to you by Inglis, number one in its field. Ian Craig and his wife Marilyn, and my wife and I attended a lovely luncheon recently, hosted by Hawkesbury trainer Wade Slinkard and his wife Doreen. Now, the Slinkards had a special house guest for the weekend none other than the lovely Victoria Shaw, Australia's only female race caller and a lady of great tenacity and determination. I first met Victoria at Mooney Valley the day saintly won the Cox Plate, and she told me that she was totally focused on becoming a race caller, and 22 years on, she has never let go of that dream. Throughout those years, Victoria has called races in a guest capacity all over Australia, with a few overseas stints as well. Victoria Shaw, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to talk.
1: John, lovely to speak with you too. Good morning.
0: A few doors have slammed in your face and a few obstacles have been placed in your way, but you refuse to surrender.
1: I, uh, yes, uh, I do recall uh, what Ned Kelly said once upon a time, many years ago, of course, uh, surrender be buggered. (laughs) I think it's a great quote <laughs> by the uh, long-time past Ned Kelly, albeit he was an outlaw, but uh, I think that stuck with me. And when I look at the legacy that someone like yourself and Ian, of course, have left um, and, of course, down south, recent the recent retirement of Greg Miles and, you know, greats such as John Russell, who's still very much with us. Race broadcasting really did come to the fore, you know, with your generation, John, and you had me spellbound for decades, essentially, as a teenager, as I developed a love for watching racing, and, you know, that that still holds true with me. I'm still captivated by what, when I turn the radio on or turn on the television today, um, and equally now we're picking up our tablets and looking at broadcasts from all over the world with YouTube, but uh, it still manages to mesmerise me. And I would very much like to be a part of that. I had grand visions as a teenager working in radio. And we think, gosh, given my age, back in the late 80s, we saw the great changes in technology, AM to FM, goodness me, and now we've got technology Mm. updating nearly every five minutes. But uh, it's still the race broadcast, in my mind, that is probably the greatest example of live radio, or today live TV at its best.
0: Mm. But what is it? What was it? about the sound of a race call that captivated you?
1: Look, apart from the immediacy, there's the element of the unknown. You look at a, a red-hot odds-on favourite when they jump and it could be a eighty or even shorter than that. But at the end of the day, we still don't know the outcome. We could be, you know, you might look at speed maps today and this thing's predicted to go to the front. It's got a good draw towards the inside. The track favours it. all the conditions are right, but things still occur or we're looking at a grand horse such as Winx that has totally captivated audiences right around the world. And we know what she can do, but she still she still manages to mesmerise you with, with every continuous sort of victory of hers. And, you know, she doesn't look like stopping anytime time soon. Uh, I, I find that absolutely uh, captivating. It really does. It's got me completely um, and it still has.
2: There
0: was a defining moment in your life when you walked into a little country radio station in Victoria for an interview. The station was 3TR Taralgan, and you were surprised yes, you to same. see a photo on the wall in the foyer of the late, great Bill Collins, who'd been one of your inspirations.
1: He certainly had been, and uh, it just hit me then, um, You know, when you mentioned that too, all those days... Down in Gippsland, and there we were at 3TR to with a girlfriend of mine as well, who'd done a little more work in television than myself at that point in time. And it struck me then and there that that was live radio at its best. Prior to that, John, I probably had been looking at a, at a broader media career and interests such as country television and rural radio work that I had a few assignments that I'd undertaken. And I had some voice coaching, and uh, it was my voice coach, Bob Taylor, whose offices were uh, close by to Caulfield Racecourse, who then referred me on to a meeting with John Russell. But Um, what
0: did he say to John Russell? He rang John to uh, tell him about you, and he used a certain expression.
1: I've got a live one here.
0: (laughs) That's right. Love it.
1: Yeah. Well, Bob used to get a little, a little annoyed when I would uh, try and, you know, arrange for our classes to take place after hours because Saturday I wanted to go to the races. I was like, no, Mr. Taylor, Saturday afternoon's not a good time for me. Why not? <laughs> They're racing. We're at the races. So um, Bob himself had some time many years ago at the old 3XY and uh, Bob's path had crossed with John Russell many times before, of course, over the years, and uh, he contacted John, and, um, you know, that that, that was the beginning of many, many more things to come.
0: John arranged for you to use a spare box at Flemington, and you got yourself set up with a pair of binoculars and a tape recorder, and you set yourself a massive task on that first day by calling the Grand National Hurdle... Of 1997, over 4,300 metres—sheer
1: lunacy—I think is probably the best way to describe it.
0: <laughs> How was the call?
1: Shocking, <laughs> <laughs> but whatever the case, I was determined, and I thought, come hell or high water, I will. You know, I looked at the task at hand. I thought, my God, what have I got myself in into? So I just thought if I can try and memorise the colours just to the feature race of the day to get that in my head and start with that and then build upon Mm. your memory bank, you know, with each coming Saturday then. And of course, Sunday racing hadn't kicked off at that point in time. So you try and work yourself up to, you know, several weeks later, sitting down and looking at the colours for all eight races on the program. And, you know, in early days, I might look at a race or two or three and then build up from there. But Mm. um it's interesting how you how you train your thoughts, um. And yeah, the the Hoolahan colours of Angler Parade, mm. the uh, maroon and the the dark blue and black stripes. That was um. Yeah, certainly a wonderful horse, a fantastic spectacle. And such a shame we've no longer got them jumping at Flemington. But um, no, it was a great race, and it was an opportunity that um, I treasure forever.
0: You carted those binoculars and that tape recorder all over Victoria wherever you could get a spare box, you'd just practice until you were blue in the face.
1: Yes, um, whether it be trotting at Mooney Valley in the old days at night or Mooney Valley meetings on a Saturday. Um, some Saturdays I might go down to Cranbourne, Yarra Glen, uh, Flemington, of course, Caulfield. We are very fortunate in Victoria with access to boxes at Metropolitan Tracks. Mm-hmm. Sandown, when well, they used to be about 30 feet before the finishing line and those the old boxes then um mm-hmm. yeah we we have had good opportunity for people like myself, not just myself there's a few of us in victoria where we'll go into the empty boxes and and practice until a live opportunity presents itself and and that really is the only way you know these days that you can learn of course many years ago i remember listening to you know john russell say or Uh, Other race callers, there were schools back in the 50s and 60s for radio announcers and race broadcasting was a part of their sort of curriculum, Mm. whereas today all of those things have disappeared. And uh, John, I often wonder when we look at, say, media courses today at university level, they don't exactly touch on sports broadcasting and what it takes to actually call a race Mm. or indeed other sports as well.
0: No, you're just unheard of.
1: No, which really is really is a lost art. So when we look at the history of race broadcasting, and it was founded here in Australia, so um, I know I've had some inter- international opportunities since, but when you look at countries, and of course Australians will criticise, in particular, United States. Um, but what I have discovered with my time with friends in, in the US of A, of course, a lot of television pro- producers over in America will tell callers to stop calling after the first four cross the line. So Mm. that in itself is um, quite an interesting adaptation of what the Australians Mm. first put out there for the public at large to enjoy.
0: Mm. I called the races at Hollywood Park for a couple of weeks way back in 1990, and I can remember the reaction of the, the punters on course when we called the run on right through to the last horse. They were stunned. It was unheard of.
1: I know, and and really, sadly, today, you know, in some sectors, it still is, but uh, some of the engagements and uh, opportunities I've had to meet people overseas, and interestingly too, um, John, there's a young man in the United States called Jonathan Horowitz, hmm. who calls in Colorado, and, and the first thing Jonathan said to me in this great big cowboyish voice was, I always try and muddle myself off the Australian race callers. And he mentioned your name too, so certainly the legacy that you have left and your contemporaries is, is global.
0: Well, thanks, Victoria. Finally, your big day came. Your first professional race call was the Hanging Rock Cup of 1998, New Year's Day, famous meeting, big crowd. What are your most vivid memories of that day?
1: apart from being completely inappropriately dressed to climb a ladder in front of about 12,000 people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And a clear view of my rear end. You're a brave Um, girl,
0: brave girl.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sundress, goodness me. Uh, Look, Miss Angelique coming up at the home straight in the mixed cerky colours, the red with the white love hearts. Mm. Great great colours for a girl to call in her first race. Um, Look, it was... It was a frightening experience, to say the least, even though it was about 38 degrees. Um, it's amazing how stone cold your body temperature can be when you're extremely nervous. Yeah. But it stuck with me. And I think it's the excitement of the event and, and also the challenge, too, before you. I want to get this, you know, you, you'll always walk away from a call and you think, gosh, you should have done this or tried that, or mm. you'll always be your, you, the world's worst critic at your own work. But I just thought, this is so exciting. I can't let this go.
0: One day at Mount Gambier, you met a lady called Pamela Knox O'Connor and the link you had with that lady was quite bizarre.
1: It was too, yes. Um, I think, John, it's very interesting to note and I will always credit and mention Pamela Knox is her maiden name. Pamela was the daughter of Sir Errol Knox who had an incredible Australian newspaper, the Old Argus in Melbourne, which was a wonderful coloured broadsheet, which would have been such an expensive uh, newspaper to print in its day, but a beautiful old broadsheet, as is, is big as the age down in Melbourne now, which is long gone, unfortunately. But Sir Errol was a great man, and he he was of the mindset that my daughters will be educated. Pamela was the first woman enrolled at Melbourne University to study law, which is extraordinary. Mm. And Pamela, in, in 1948, 50 years to the day prior to myself at Hanging Rock, Hmm. was tapped on the shoulder by someone in the crowd at the New Year's Day races as they thought she'd be familiar with the colours given she rode in the Melbourne Hunt Club for the horses that were racing on the day then, of course, 1948 prior to the TAB days that we enjoy now. And Pamela had to take over from a certain race caller on the day who was... Um, perhaps a little tired and emotional, as they might have enjoyed the New Year's festivities a bit too much the night before, (laughs) and Pamela took over the call for the remainder of the afternoon, and she only did it once, and she spoke to me about it, and she said, I never ever wanted to do it again, Mm. but uh, she also enjoyed herself on the day too. So that was Australia's first female race caller, really is Pamela Knox O'Connor, and Coincidentally, Pamela rode in the Melbourne Hunt Club with my late grandmother, Margaret mm. Victoria Selman, who mm. I never met. She was long gone before, uh, before I was born.
0: Mm. Not long after that, you were invited to be guest caller on Deloraine Cup Day in Tasmania. The with third place getter, yes. eh?
1: With Peter Gilligan?
0: Yeah, Pete Gilligan. The third place getter in the race you called was ridden by the celebrated female jockey Beverly Buckingham, only three weeks before that horrible fall at Elwick in Hobart that ended her career.
1: Yes, and there was that beautiful big smile of Bev's and the, you know, that gorgeous mop of jet black hair and those dark gorgeous brown eyes. Such a, a beautiful young lady, but such a gutsy determina, determination or, you know, about her her whole being, not just the way she rode. Um, but it was lovely. Bev actually finished third that day on a horse called All Sand, who actually enjoyed uh, a fair bit of success in Melbourne for Graham McCulloch, and I can remember Beverly coming up the home straight there at uh, Deloraine, which was an interesting track because um, – there was a football grandstand in the middle, a shearing shed. There were sheep grazing, mm. and there was a bushfire not too far away in the distance as well. Mm. There was a bit of smoke in the, smoke in our midst that afternoon. But um, at the end of the uh, race day, Beverly and a whole family came up to speak to me, and that was that was such a delight because I mean Beverly was a superstar, and she had done so much. And also back then, too, with uh, the technology of the day, we didn't exactly get the Tasmanian results straight away. Mm. So in Melbourne or Sydney, you're always hanging out to hear what had happened in Tasmania. We all knew about Bev. And um, for her to come up and spend some time with me, that was so generous of her because obviously they had, had to go home and feed horses and other things like that. But her whole family to, to have a, sit down and have a bit of a chat and a cup of tea, that was just gorgeous.
0: Great girl. She rode almost a 1,000 winners, Victoria. Her total was 960. She was the first female jockey to win a jockey's premiership anywhere in Australia.
1: I think she might have been the world too, John. um, May have, yeah. Yeah, look, such an extraordinary legacy and, you know, just... Almost the ferocity of her riding as well. God, she was brave and bold and she dipped to the front as soon as she could. She, it was just wonderful to watch. She really was.
0: Victoria, stand by there. We're going to pause for an important break on our podcast. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: For
1: over
0: 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. My guest is Victoria Shaw, Australia's only female race caller. Everywhere you went in that era you were under the microscope and you knew that. How were your nerves in those early days?
1: Uh, not the best. <laughs> um, look, it's, yeah, it's a nice way to develop a bit of a sleep disorder. Um, it, it does, sadly, your nerves can override what you're trying to achieve on the day, which is not too good at times. Um mm. And learning to overcome those fears and also any unnecessary anxiety. I mean, John, in all honesty, sometimes the reaction from the public can be uh, a little under what it should be. You're not, you're not looking for hugs and <laughs> no. and letters of congratulations, but uh, sometimes you'll get the odd uh, voice from the, when you're walking through the crowd or something. You think, mm, goodness me, that's a bit ordinary, didn't need that? No, um, no. But whatever the case, look, we're out there to represent what's going on before us. And you think about the scrutiny that jockeys are under, trainers as well. There's the pressure of the tote, of course, people expecting where their money is to, to actually, you know, give them a return, so to speak. There's a lot of pressure on f- for everyone engaged on race day. And, um, you know, you try the best to del- to deliver in the best possible fashion that you can. But I think today... Probably the best thing I've ever done for myself, um, and this is going to sound completely bizarre to those that have never bothered to actually venture up and, and call a race live, mm. greyhound racing is the best thing I've ever done um, to mm. be in control of my nerves in a situation, and it's completely altered my mindset. God knows why when they're going hell or leather up the straight at a place like or mm. in under 17 or 19 seconds over 350 or 300 metres, they're absolutely mm. flying. Um, and the finishing line is effectively over our shoulder. That uh, mm. can present you with a few tricky conundrums. But um, it really has taught me to calm down. Um, and I've, I really believe that greyhound racing is probably the best thing that I've added um, to my sort of repertoire as part of being uh, a training or ongoing. My training is always ongoing as a race broadcaster.
0: A respected Melbourne greyhound caller called Rob Tester has given you great support and great guidance.
1: He certainly has. Look, um, John, I think it's important to note for your listeners, I would be nowhere today without Rob Tester. He has unbelievably put himself in a position where he went out of his way. A situation presented itself, um, unfortunately, when the live uh, baiting outrage really was at its peak. Um, I had an opportunity with Racing Queensland, which was just fantastic to call a final for greyhound female, all women trainers with greyhounds, all female drivers in a a pacing race and of course um, all female jockeys in a race at Doombin, a galloping race of course and um, sadly we lost the greyhound event given the pressures of the day but the training that I underwent at Sandan Park with Rob on a Sunday to get ready for that opportunity I thought, right, I'm not letting this go. And Rob contacted me and he said, right, let's start going live with this in Melbourne. You've worked so hard. Don't let that all go to waste. And, you you know, and I do need to be across all three codes. I do think it's also important to mention a lot of people don't understand. I actually work in the legal industry um, in a support capacity during the week as well. So all of this is undertaken in my spare time. Mm. And uh, I thought, well, Sandown Park is a nice close drive from home, which sort of um, you're, you know, giving yourself a better chance then when you're turning up to these venues, you don't have a big drive, you can sink more time into your form and looking at replays. And we just started going live on a Saturday with full support, A for uh, Sunday, pardon me, mm-hmm. with full support from the club and um, we've t- taken it on since there. So it's, it's been a wonderful opportunity. And I think the racing, too, is just fantastic. It's not a code I grew up with, but it's something that I have absolutely fallen in love with. And the amount of women we've got training, my God, Mm -hmm. plenty of them. Uh, And it's such a great sport. And the dogs are just, they're gorgeous. And, you know, we've got, this is the strongest greyhound jurisdiction in the world, to have so many dogs now that are racing and winning over a million dollars in stakes earning. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to see the progeny of, a wonderful size such as Fernando Bale zipping around at the moment that's that's just fantastic and you know to have seen a, a wonderful bitch like Fanta Bale or you know I've I've actually had the opportunity to call Aston DB who of course won last year's Melbourne Cup I mean that's that's a f- fabulous opportunity very exciting
0: it has sneaked up on you hasn't it the greyhound racing
1: It sure has, and it's something I I never, ever want to put down to. I'd love to continue on with it as well.
0: You got an interesting offer once from Tabcorp Victoria shortly before it bought Tab Limited New South Wales. That must have been around 2002, It was an ambassadorial role. What were your duties? You did that for about two years.
1: That was uh, a lot of fun, too, working for Tab And as you've mentioned, prior to the acquisition of the New South Wales Tote, in Melbourne, uh, we did a lot of pre-records on Good Morning Australia, which would go out on race morning, particularly on big group one dates throughout the spring, such as the Cox Plate, the Caulfield Cup, mm. uh, Derby morning, things like that. We would preview um, punting opportunities. And back then, they were of the mindset, at Tab in Victoria, trying to get women uh, more engaged in punting. Uh, you know, of course, the marketing of racing and still is is very heavily geared to fashions and some lovely lunches, of course, which which is a big part of the day. But you look at the adversity to risk that is very much a part of the sort of psychological structure of women. Uh, why they don't uh, they're not found in bedding houses or as frequently as men. And I think that's something that we'll see all over the world. But trying to get ladies on board. With that capacity was was a bit of fun. Uh, it was interesting as well to see what the stats and results were. But it was a great opportunity to and to also give me a better understanding as to how important in a country like Australia wagering is. It's a very a very big factor in our, uh, our race days or race evenings. And I think for the community at large, and some people may scorn or scoff or scold about those that are punting. But without that. Takeout factor. We don't have our you know money for roads and schools and public hospitals. So, the way the state governments in Australia have managed that, when I've seen racing abroad, the return to the community from it is uh, something that Australia has managed very very well. And I've also had opportunities overseas to discuss with with people, and we look at other countries now. And Turkey is a great example how they always use Australian wagering as a model and the government has full control of racing in Turkey. But equally, they look to Australia to see how they can extract those funds to return to the community. And other countries are coming on board with the same mindset as well now. So Australia really has led the way. But to see that all in action and and have a better understanding of it, I think is very, very important working here in Australia within the racing community.
0: I can think of a couple of race days when you would, uh, if you had them over again, prefer not to have been there. One of them uh, was the day that big huntsman spider got into the broadcast box and was eyeballing you during the call of a race.
2: Oh, yes. (laughs) And
0: another day at at a little (laughs) place called Yay, where a wasp nest was in full swing right behind you.
1: That was... Frightening would be an understatement, and and John, I've never had anaphylaxis yet. Um, <laughs> the mama wasp or queen bee wasp—I'm not sure how because she's not a bee; she's a wasp. But the mm. uh, the matriarch of all wasps, and God, she was damn big with these big tentacle things hanging off her. She was zooming in and zooming out, mm. and as the wasp nest was building, and horses are making their way down to the starting gates we hadn't had a lot of rain at yay, and it was fairly dusty, and I remember throwing the microphone and said, look, uh, if this sounds a little rushed, I may abandon this position at any moment. There was a wasp nest building behind my head, and uh, Mm. I didn't get a lot of sympathy that afternoon. No. Um, And equally, I was uh, on the ready to jump out the uh, the window at any moment. So was the (laughs) cameraman, I might add.
0: Yeah. My God. The punters had no sympathy because the race was about to get underway. That was their primary concern.
1: Yes, that that actually, Ye did throw us a a few curly ones. There was a uh, tiger snake one afternoon there at the gates, and I remember with the two-way radio thinking, goodness me, we're seven minutes over. What's going on here? And
2: Mm.
1: I uh, hit the button on the two-way, and I said, "Uh, how much longer? And all I can hear is this in the background and (laughs) I made sure my microphone switch was off and the cut of the stock whip slammed on the ground from one of the starters and jockeys were jumping off and horses were rearing and people were just basically running for their lives. They eventually got him, Mm. but I might have been about 300 metres away and I just had a great urge to to get up on the roof.
2: (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah, and a tiger snake. I mean, they're not uh, the… They're not friendly. They don't have the harmonious personality, do they?
1: No, no, particularly when they're cut in
0: half, but anyway. Now, Victoria, you called a picnic meeting one day at a place called Mansfield in the high country. It was about 2013 and you were broadcasting from a position well short of the line and you were uncertain about one of the finishes on the day and you actually used the words, this is a job for the judge, but the judge didn't cooperate.
1: No, it was a ridiculous outcome. Goodness me, Mansfield. It was an event over twelve or 1,300 metres from memory. I was standing on a picnic table, appropriately dressed, I might add, trying to avoid sunburn on another 40-degree wonderful day. Mm. And there was probably about 150 people on course in total because it was an absolute stinker in the middle of summer. It was the 28th of December and as the Blue Angel and Vixenite went helpful further down the back behind the, uh, behind the Red Gum at Mansfield, and they were at each other for no more than a long neck the whole way. We did start with a field of five, and they managed to get scratched down to various incidents, down to just the two. Mm. So when they let them go, the Vixenite and the Blue Angel uh, were at each other, hammer and tong the whole way, and as they rounded the corner for home, Vixenite was leading on the inside. The Blue Angel kept coming again. And Vixenite looked like she had the race sewn up. And just as they have hit the line, remembering I'm about 30 feet before the line, the Vixenites lunged right on the line. And I just said, goodness me, we're going to have to go for the photo. Mm. And the judge had the luxury of being under a roof and a structure with a photo finish. And I don't know if he'd was a little tired or perhaps tired and emotional, just a little hot under the collar. Mm. But he put up the numbers and Vix declared Vixenite the winner. Now, unfortunately, there was a little mob gathered right on the finishing line and these young gents had had a wager and they yelled out, that's wrong, the Blue Angel should have the win. Mm. The stewards have come in and demanded to look for the photo. I got hauled in as well and so did the judge. Meanwhile, of course, in 2013, and social media is what it is, and in full swing back then, Facebook has uh, been operated by someone on course, and the next thing you know, Edward Sadler, a friend of mine who's been calling overseas, John Sadler's son, mm. has messaged me from the Royal Singapore Turf Club, what's going on at Mansfield? It's all <laughs> over the news here. Yeah, Poor Terry Bailey, the steward's operating at Mooney Valley, and he's got the call. Goodness me, they've paid out incorrectly at Mansfield. And the next thing you know, that night, the BBC World News Service clearly it was a low news day. The elite story was in a two horse race in Mansfield, Victoria, Australia, the judge has gone with the wrong horse. And up came my call. I nearly died.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What a way <laughs> to get exposure! <laughs> Yeah. Yes. 2008, anyway, Victoria. Can I just uh, jump ahead a little or go back a little? You called a full TAB meeting at Alice Springs and you were very chuffed about that. I think that was uh, one day, one meeting, one achievement that gave you a great sense of fulfilment.
1: It really did, John. And unfortunately, the circumstances that led me there, Shane Mervyn Green, Shane's turned into a great friend. Um, Shane had to have an operation and, uh, of course, couldn't be there. And Shane had to fly to New South Wales to have the operation. So I know that he tuned in on his mobile device as well. And I got a, a, a great message from him later on in the evening when he wrote to me to congratulate me on my work. But It was a hell of a dash up from Melbourne. I managed to get a direct flight to Alice Springs, which was, uh, they don't always operate from Melbourne every day. Mm. Managed to get on one, landed there for the beginning of the twilight meeting, Um, was picked up by our race course manager in the ute. He had the good grace to throw the kelpie off the front seat out of the ute into the back. (laughs) thought I was going to sit out there with his uh, bag of chaff. Anyway, so yeah, the dog made way for me. That was really nice. Anyway, we Mm. jumped into the ute. We took off to the track and in all its glory, there were the McDonald Rangers. What a backdrop. Mm. Gorgeous and the sun started to go down. It was a delightful day and of course, there's the club colours, there's the club emergency colours, the... uh, the Forex with the uh, red with the gold and the gold with the red. But as the dust kicked up and they let them go, and I remember distinctly a horse running around, strangely called a foot full of bindies. And I thought, I don't know if that's named terribly well. <laughs> but uh, as, you know, the horses galloped down the back and there's a cloud of dust, I couldn't think of a better day to be an Australian. It was just fantastic. It really was. And I've got cameramen that were Indigenous with me, and I'd say, oh, where do you come from? Oh, I'm four hours that way, just around the corner. <laughs> you know, and you'd be looking down at the race book, and there's a horse that's driven God knows how many hours. It was floated from Emerald in outback Queensland. It was it was yeah. just fantastic. It really was.
0: You were guest commentator for a couple of years at a unique race meeting at a place called King Island, uh, the King Island Race Club holds about seven meetings a year. I think they're all over that Christmas, New Year period. But there's one special day where they roll, uh, they have the trots and the gallops on the same program.
1: They do, trotting on the grass at King Island. And strangely, uh, when you see a lot of the thoroughbreds that go down there, you think, yes, clearly this is the point of no return. They'd better kick a goal here or God knows what their outcome might be, hopefully just rounding up a few cows on the island. But um, some of the trotting horses there, when they come to Melbourne, it tracks at Ge- like, such as Geelong go very, very well. And one incident down there that stuck with me that wasn't terribly favourable if you were the, one of the horses going right standard breeds that day was they'd have the, uh, the mobile would be a ute with the old um, arms folding back. And unfortunately, one afternoon, the battery decided to go in the ute Mm. and it managed to come to a screeching halt in the home straight where they let them go for the first time and the poor horses went smack bang into the back of the gates mm-hmm. which i don't think that was terribly nice if you're if you're one of the horses but it was um it was an extraordinary little uh, race meeting i don't know if they've managed to um put a surface on the bar floor then back then it was dirt mm-hmm. And the sling to one of the jockeys or the drivers, if you'd done well, was a crayfish. But catching the plane back to (laughs) Moravan Airport in Melbourne, you'd find out if the crays were uh, alive or dead. And some of them would come to life mid-flight. And a few jockeys that might have uh, had a couple of drinks if they'd missed rides later on in the day, typically jockeys down there had issues with their watch. But God knows why they'd tuck into crayfish and camembert pies. Goodness me. <laughs> and you hope they didn't have too many of them, but uh, with a few bevvies as well coming home because it was at a 10-seaters. So we all a bit close. Mm. And then a few of them had decided to be a bit cheeky and let their crayfish get out and scurry around the plane. Oh, God. <laughs> you should <laughs> write a, a book,
0: Victoria. You should write a book. You've, <laughs> you've got some great material. You were intrigued to get a phone call one day from a lady called Maureen Milburn the director of NARA, National Arabian Racehorse Association, and this remarkable lady, who has been the recipient of some coveted awards, extended to you a wonderful proposal, bearing in mind that NARA is all about women getting opportunities.
1: It is, too, the National Arabian Racehorse Association. And I think, John, for your listeners, a lot of them might have seen what they would call a display race um with arabian horses at various tracks around australia and arabian racing particularly in the middle east of course and the northern hemisphere is is quite dominant and you, you look at uh, some of the scandinavian countries where harness racing is their number one sport mm. but the next tier down this their you know their second uh, equine sport is arabian racing and thoroughbreds come in a distant third or fourth or some, of the, some thoroughbred uh, events in countries such as Holland you know, are, are, are way down the list of uh, opportunities for, for sport. But um, Australia is the greatest producer of purebred Arabians in the world, and we export so many horses to the Middle East at Great Return to the Breeders here in Australia. And uh, they had an opportunity sponsored by His Highness Sheikh Mansour bin Zayed Al Nahayan. Now, Sheikh Mansour is actually the chairman of the Emirates Racing Association, albeit he doesn't own any thoroughbreds, but he's all about promoting the Arabian horse. And his mother, Her Highness Sheikh Fatima bint Mubarak, is big on opportunities for women. And for those of you that haven't ventured to the Middle East, particularly the United Arab Emirates, the ferocity that this country has gone forward with opportunities for women and promotion of women in sport and the workforce within the last two decades is just remarkable. And this racing tour that Sheikh Mansour and Sheikh Fatima sponsored travels all over the world. It engages a few of us here from Australia, where some of the Australian jockeys have actually had chances to race ride right on tracks such as uh, Casablanca in Morocco or Lingfield in the United Kingdom, a racetrack in Kentucky, even Santa Anita in Los Angeles, or Tours Luziwick in Warsaw. Mm. Extraordinary places. But um, when they ventured down under, they managed to sponsor two races at Moonee Valley the night that Black Caviar contested her 14th race, the Australia Day Stakes.
0: And you were the on-course commentator for those two races.
1: I was and to stand there, you know, Greg Miles was upstairs with me, of course, before, you know, several years before his retirement, to stand there and look down at 30,000 people on course, knowing Black Caviar was there in attendance on that night and we had Islamic female jockeys with us from Oman and the United Arab Emirates. We engaged girls from Queensland to race, ride as well as, you know, amateur riders here in Melbourne, Danny Walker, who's a celebrated jockey on the Victorian picnic circuit, Mm. um, and other girls that were riding with us from countries such as Sweden. For the first time for them to even come to an Australia as a tourist, yet alone to contest a race, that was an extraordinary moment for them and equally myself. And that broadcast that night went to the United Arab Emirates and also England, where Sheikh Mansour was actually residing at the time. And that was just a phenomenal opportunity that has managed to, since you know, provide me with further engagement around the world. So the debt of gratitude I have to Maureen, I don't think could ever be repaid.
0: There was a promotion at the Sandown track uh, a little later. Again, two races, and again you were the commentator.
1: Yes, that was that was lovely, and also to see we had people bring their Arabian horses down to race. I know they had managed to float them down from as far as uh, Cairns in Queensland. You know, a great long journey for them and have Victorian horses and New South Wales horses engaged as well. And once again, we had, you know, female riders from countries such as Sweden. Actually, Anna Anna Pilroth won one of the races that day. We had Australian jockeys. um, Annalise Schubert who comes from, I think, the Canberra region road that day, and she's she's won races at tracks such as Bong Bong mm. on thoroughbreds. But to also have the mix of amateur and professional riders on the same circuit, and, you know, these amateur girls are of a very, very high standard. That was lovely to see as well. And, and once again, the diversity of the day, not just the breed of the horse, but these girls from all over the world at different levels of competition and ability, but, you know, up to standard that is good enough to present itself onto a track, that was an extraordinary day and, and wonderful foresight too to, of course, His Highness Sheikh Mansour and Sheikh Fatima out of the Middle East as well.
0: You love saying those Arabic names, don't you?
1: You've got to get them right, John. You've got to get them <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
0: you've got them off, Pat. Victoria, the Arabian Connection led you to your first international call in 2015. You mentioned the name of the track a little while ago. I'm not even going to attempt to, uh, to pronounce the name of the racetrack in Warsaw, Poland.
1: Tor Sluzywick, yes. Zindobry um, Vyshava, as, <laughs> as they let them out of the gates. through Hello, Warsaw. Well, it was just <laughs> such a moving day. Um, I was there from, with Derek Thompson, who was the first English-speaking commentator in Dubai. And Derek was with us. Gary Capel, also from Ladbrokes in England, uh, was part of the commentary team that day. And the race that I got to call with Derek, because Tour Sluziwick is actually bigger than Flemington, it's probably about, it's somewhere between, say, the size of Flemington and Rickerton. It is absolutely mm-hmm. enormous, grand sweeping bends, um, beautiful art deco structure, and it's... It's actually one, the buildings and the race course building and facility at Warsaw is one of about five or six buildings that Hitler did not destroy in the Warsaw Uprising because when he took over the town, that's where he positioned all of the tanks mm. and the Nazis used it as a base. So it's one of the original structures still standing after that terrible episode in, in, war, you know, in war, World War II. Mm. But to stand there on this beautiful old Art Deco structure We're looking at the beautiful green scene that is uh, the race track there in Warsaw and all of the beautiful trees in the background. And it was a field there. The Sheikh Fatima Bint Mubarak uh, had sponsored a race for female riders. And amongst our assembled girls behind the gates on Purebred Arabians was a young Islamic rider from Morocco. It Mamoul, she hadn't won a race at home as yet. She'd had a jockey's licence for roughly about six months and this was her first international engagement and also her first race victory, which was about to unfold before my eyes. And she was on a horse called Vazaloo, this beautiful dapple grey that came up the home straight. And given the level of these girls, they're not allowed to actually use the whip. And to bring this horse, it was an 1800 metre event, to bring him home, she was tiring as they approached the line And equally so was her horse because her her winning margin was only about a short half head. Mm -hmm. And she was doing everything she could to get this horse over the line. And uh, she was very, very tired when she finished finished the race ride. But when she turned around and came back to scale and she stood up in the irons, and I think it was such a special moment. And she's probably the first Islamic female jockey in the world to win a race. And I think now Mm -hmm. at all of the incorrect Feed that we get get on you know the broader media or TV here in Australia about what their community is doing with women. They are doing an awful lot, and this was such a celebrated moment that when Bushra flew home into Rabat, the King of Morocco, Mohammed VI, was waiting for her at the airport. Now this is six months ahead of Michelle Payne winning the Melbourne Cup. Mm. It was just such a moving moment, and um, we're all in tears too. And it was funny at the end of the broadcast. Some of the, uh, you know, people in the crowd that were standing on the balcony with us, the gentleman tapped me on the shoulder and he picked my accent over Derek's and Gary's as the only Australian. He said, excuse me, I have been to Melbourne Cup.
2: Oh, did he? And
1: he held out his hand and went to shake mine. And that was just gorgeous. It really was.
0: So, Victoria, what is the state of play for Victoria Shore? In 2018, as you mentioned earlier, you're working four days a week for a respected legal firm in Melbourne.
1: A big thank you to Kalis Kenny Intellects as well. And uh, I know one of our partners there, um, Henry Kalis, who's had, you know, some great racehorses as an owner and, you know, has experienced some wonderful victories. Um, I'm extremely thankful for them uh, letting Pursue My Dreams because we all need full-time employment to pay the bills and um at this point you know i don't have a full time broadcasting opportunity but you know i still attend sandown park every sunday i can i'm now uh, on air on a friday when i can at heelsville with james Vandermatt calling the greyhounds up the straight mm-hmm. which is uh an exercise in keeping you on your toes believe me um <laughs> but but it's wonderful and it's very very enjoyable too um it's it's almost addictive really And I'm also calling the Cranbourne Harness Trials as well um, on a Saturday morning. So, look, I'm continually throwing my hat in the ring wherever I can. I'm lucky enough to pick up about three engagements a year abroad with the Sheikh Mansour Festival or also um, Shadwell Arabians as well. Um, Sheikh Hamdan doesn't just uh, have thoroughbred opportunities, he also has racing Arabians around around the world. And I've had some lovely opportunities courtesy of Sheikh Hamdan with Shadwell in Morfordville and also the Gold Coast here in Australia. Um, so look, I'm always on the lookout for any opportunity that I can, and and hopefully we've got one soon up here in Hawkesbury, in New South Wales.
0: Well, you spent the weekend in the Hawkesbury Valley with Wade and Doreen Slinkard. You attended the Saturday meeting at Hawkesbury yesterday, September the first, simply yes. to familiarise yourself with the track and the broadcasting facilities. And that's a very professional thing to do because you'll be back at Hawkesbury's biggest meeting of the year, Ladies' Day, two days after the Melbourne Cup, the day of the Victorian Oaks. It is a huge race meeting and you're, you're going to be guest commentator on the day.
1: Yes, and it's something I am looking forward to immensely. And I'd also like to say a very big thank you to Doreen and Wade for uh, Helping all of this come together, and equally uh, facilitating my opportunity here um, to go out to the track yesterday, and also a big thank you to Greg Rudolph as well, who's backing the situation, which I appreciate. The club getting behind it as well, and and John, as you fully appreciate, and I think some of our listeners will, what a race broadcast presents. It's a fairly hefty level of responsibility and you are you are out there representing not just all of those owners the jockeys the trainers the wonderful horses that we see and all the hard work that goes into presenting those animals on race day but there's a level of responsibility to the club the club and also of course the you know the broadcasting community and the punting community at large so a lot goes into it uh, there's a little bit of weight on the shoulders but uh big thank you to Mitch Manners as well for his time yesterday and consideration which I appreciate greatly I did want to have a look at the track. Each track presents its uh, fair share of difficulties or idiosyncrasies and you like to like to have those sort of, you know, them in the back of your mind knowing how to prepare on the day as well because as I mentioned earlier, you know, something could go out and be a short price favourite and we expect it to go to the front and it might have a good draw and get the gun run and, and, and lead all the way. But at the end of the day, they are animals and a few of the, a few of the unknown elements can present itself. So you'd like to be, as prepared as you can be to be your best on the day. Well,
0: Victoria, I have no doubt that you're going to be invited to call races in a guest capacity many more times in many different places. And you know what? Despite all the frustrations that you've faced over 20-odd years, isn't it nice to be asked?
1: It certainly is. It... uh it sure is, and it's uh, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful role to find yourself positioned in. Sometimes, for all of the hard work, and sometimes behind the scenes, there might be a few uh, tears and tantrums, and no more tiaras. But. Um, <laughs> You know when you're looking them going to the gates and and all's going well, and you, you know with the more you do, like anything, the better you become, you're standing, you know I have had the opportunity in recent years, whether I'm here in Australia or abroad, and I think, how good is this, and how lucky am I? And how thankful am I too. And as I said uh, a moment ago, big thank you to Doreen and Wade and all of the clubs and and fellow broadcasters that have managed to stand aside, you know from their own roles and their own dreams and aspirations and how much they enjoy their work, as you did, John. But to be a part of that and to allow me to come into the fold, I'm extremely thankful for and, and very, very privileged.
2: You
0: have left your mark, Victoria Shore, on the racing industry, on the broadcasting profession and on my podcast today. It's been a delight having you on the show. Thank you so much.
1: John, Thank you. For
0: over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for group one wins and the only auction house to sell a group one winning two year old. They sold four in fact.
2: I'm proud to align myself with Inglis number one in its field.